quick note before this episode begins, on the original footage my audio wasn't captured. So what I've had to do is re-watch the footage over again and try to re-record secondhand the questions that I asked Bill as well as I could remember them. So so if there are any times in which Bill seems to be reacting to something I'm saying but the my audio isn't there, that will be why. I don't think I missed any, but just in case I did, that's why there's no need to be confused. Enjoy the discussion. I was brought up as a very lukewarm uh, member of the uh, what you call a church in England. Uh, um, I can't think of the name of it, but Protestant church. And I was a little boy. And that fell away when my father died when I was eight. And when I was in my late teens, I joined a Catholic church because I wanted to marry a girl who was Catholic. I mean, this was not very deep levels, okay? I was looking for truth and all that, but I uh, joined the Catholic church and we didn't get married. And that fell away after two or three years, three years. And then nothing. And uh, attended a Unitarian church, which is very intellectual and very... Uh, reaches out to everybody and everything very socially active, but that was just to take photographs of the minister who retired. And I attend, a, if I do attend a church, it's called Unity, which is not very well known, I'm sure, in England. But um, it's the broadest, widest, most accepting of all Christian churches that I know of. Someone called, there, I went out on a date with a woman once. She bought a great big thick book, and there were four religions that are very well known here, like Mormonism uh, and things like that. And she and one of them was unity. And why these are not even Christian churches. <laughs> this is not a date. Like I'm saying, you spend twenty dollars in a book to convince me that I don't belong to a Christian church. Like, what kind of a date is this? So, would you have considered yourself at that point a theist? No, 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 no. I was I was an agnostic. And my what I used to say to people. Uh, we human beings are like flashlight batteries. And when the juice runs out, you throw the body away, and that's the end. Yeah, so like when you put out a candle, the flame's just gone. Yes, right. Okay, sure. So I was not a believer in any of this. Right, so at that point, would you have considered that you followed the philosophy of materialism? I was a materialist, but... I had a set of experiences starting in uh, May 12th, 1974, in which I began receiving writings, channeled writings from people who had died. Um, at first there were short stories and uh, then there came poetry and parables and things like that. And then finally messages for living people, people who were physically alive from relatives of theirs who had died or friends of relatives. And I was functioning like a medium, but I had no desire to do that. That scared me. I was afraid of being wrong, of course, getting a message, and afraid of being right. And my messages were all written down. It wasn't like I was sitting opposite you and getting feedback and reading your body language or anything like that. I had no idea uh, who, who, who I was getting a message from. I knew who it was intended for. And I'd have to call them on the telephone and say to them, uh, 
you know me as this, this, and this, but not as this, and now I'm doing this. Uh, and I'd say, uh, would you like to have my wife type the message up and send it to you? And I, everybody said yes. So you'd receive communication from Spirit, and then you'd write down the... Yes, yeah. and all written, yes. And I'm, write, I'm just finishing a second book, which I've just been working on, called uh, The Book of Circles, that contains 60 of these writings, of these stories. So do you know story. why you started to receive these communications? I have no idea. Well, I, in my case, and this is very unusual, in my oh, there, there are whole books written this way, uh, by the way, where somebody hears a voice or whatever. Uh, I believe that the book Jonathan Livingston Siegel, which came through Richard Bach, and the book The um, The Little Prince came through Antoine Saint Exupéry that way, and and many other books. Uh, the, there's a book called um, uh, what's it called? I think of it right now. My mind's filled with so much other stuff. Um, the Afterlife of Billy Fingers. This is a woman. Who, uh, it was a communication with her uh, brother who died. And that whole book is based upon their conversations. So when you received these messages from, from Spirit, did you hear them as if there was someone stood next to you talking to you? Or? I, no, I'm receiving it as thoughts in my head. I don't hear a voice. And it's not word by word. It's just a thought. And we all express the same. We could all have a thought, say 20 people, and they'd write it down or express it slightly differently from each other. It's not exact. Yes, a matter of interpretation. Yes, yes. So how can you tell the difference between a spirit communication and just a standard thought? The difference is when it's a thought that, uh, or it says something you would never think of saying and, in, and uh, has implications and seems to be the next thing that goes in that particular story. And I am not a creative writer. That's in uh, the book I'm writing. But I was uh, in high school and we used to have something called composition day on Fridays when you had to write something, I didn't care what, but they gave you 50 minutes to write something. And I turn in blank pages of paper <laughs> and my grades are very high in math. And I got into Yale University, but I was told don't even think about liberal arts because you'll never make it. Major in engineering or science, but not something more like, you know, English don't because I, I was not a creative writer at all. Yeah, and yet the book by you and, and Judy, Hello from Heaven, is perhaps the most prolific on the subject. Or it founded the entire field. Hello from Heaven founded the entire field of after death. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And it was published in the UK. There are two different publishers, no less. Uh, the first one that made it unavailable, but the second one, it uh, it's still in print. You can still buy it from Amazon. Hmm. So what was it that made you start looking into this this subject and inevitably to, to write your book? Was there a, a catalyst that caused this to start working? Basically, it was this. If you know the name Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she was a, a medical doctor, psychiatrist from Switzerland who had come to the United States. And uh, she was the person who did the most work on the field of death and dying. And uh, she spoke about it totally differently in our country. And it was really her work that founded all the hospices, not that she did, but the people who attended her uh, seminars and workshops and lectures and read her books and whatnot. They founded all the hospices in the United States. So this goes back to the 60s and 70s. And I had seen her on TV 
and uh, had her name or address on uh, the screen after one of her shows. I sent a check in for all $25, which is not a great deal of money then or now, 1977, uh, 1976 rather. Sent a check for $25, thinking that was that was my good deed for the day. Backpack on my back. You know, like giving to the Boy Scouts or whatever you believe in, or somebody comes to your door. It's not much money. And then she sent back a series of uh, audio cassette tapes and an invitation to attend a five-day workshop with her, which would be six months away. And I felt very honored to be invited because she was world-renowned world at that point. She had even been nominated for a Nobel Prize. She didn't win one, but she didn't get enough votes, but she got some votes. And uh, I went to that. At first, I uh, hesitated because I didn't want to take up the space of a medical person a doctor, a nurse, or somebody like that. And that's who I thought would attend her workshops. And so I said, I waited till the last day of the registration period. I called her office expecting to get her secretary. And I was going to say, thank you very much for inviting me, but please release my space to somebody who could use it. And that particular day, she answered her own telephone herself. Uh, but this is like, in your language, having one of the Beatles pick up John Lennon or one of those picks Paul McCartney picks up the phone and says hello, and you know who it is. And she said, Bill, she listened to me, and she said, Bill, I think you should be there. So I went, and they were the five most joyous consecutive days of my life. And during that five days, uh, one woman who was a nurse uh, shared with the rest of us, there were 70, 70 of us there, how her daughter had been hit and killed by a driver, and but the daughter had come back to her. She had seen the door. She called it a dream, but it was so vivid and real and un unusual, different than any other dream she'd ever had. And she was obviously very uplifted by this because it had happened less than a year earlier. And then she went on to say how her teenage son, the younger brother of this girl, who was doing his homework one night, he looked up and he saw his deceased sister standing there and he could describe her clothes and everything. And that freaked him out. And he came running out of the bedroom into the living room where the parents were watching TV. And I thought, this is my way my brain even worked then. And that is that <laughs> if she called us a dream, to me, dreams were real. So I'm happy for her that she was comforted by a happy dream, an uplifting dream. I dismissed it. And then when the boy ran out, I thought, let's see, teenage boy, let's see, 15, 16, whatever he was, marijuana, <laughs> you know, went through yeah. the different drugs. Yeah obviously stoned on something and fantasized. So I dismissed that. But then Elizabeth stood up and she shared an experience she had with a patient of, a patient of hers, a woman who had died 10 months earlier. That was very evidential in many ways. And I thought, well, if it may be just one out of a thousand people or 10,000, I have no idea. But does anybody else have an experience like Elizabeth did? Because this is very strong evidence for life after death. So my thing after the workshop was to find how often do people have these experiences? Are there any others that were reported? And uh, that's when I began to research in a way. And I'd find one book would have one or two accounts, another book would have three or four and something else, one or even a whole chapter. But nobody had ever researched or written a book on these. But I'm not a medical doctor. In these fields, you need to be a medical doctor preferably like Raymond Moody was so when he wrote his book Life After Life on near-death experiences or um, 
at least a PhD, uh, somebody with four you know, graduate degrees. I didn't have those. So I figured if I wrote a brilliant book and spent years and dollars and that energy, nobody would ever publish it. You know, who'd buy it, who'd believe it? Because who am I? Nobody in these fields. I used to be a stockbroker and a securities analyst on Wall Street, okay, back when I lived in New York. And I tried to get Raymond Moody to write the book. While he never said no, he never actually said yes. He kept postponing me. And then I had an experience where I heard in my head, um, I was living here in Florida, and I was married at the time. We had uh, three sons. The youngest was not yet two, two years old. And I heard a voice in my head that said on a Sunday afternoon, go outside and check the swimming pool. And I did. And I went out and I just walked. I didn't run. I just walked. Because there was a gate that was left ajar. It should be a safety gate. should have been closed. And when I looked down to my right at the deep end of the pool, our youngest son was floating in the water and not moving. And I didn't know if he had drowned already or what. I yelled my wife's name. I ran down the side of the pool, and I, just before I went in, I took off my shoes. I, I don't know why, but I knew to do that. And I looked at him, and he was one inch under the water. His eyes were wide open, and he had a small smile on his face. And again, I didn't know if he was dead or alive. So I went down into the water under him and pushed him twice to the side. My wife, Judy, came out, grabbed him by the wrist, pulled him up, and it all happened so fast he did not require... CPR or any you know, uh, breathing exercises. He spit up some water. He was cold. I was cold because the water was cold, but he was fine. And that same voice that said that spoke to me 11 years later in 1978. 1988, uh, excuse me. That was 77. This was 88. And that said, do your own research, write your own book. It's your spiritual work to do. And with that, I asked Judy, and we were divorced by, for four years by this point. But she was the one who, we'd been married 17 years, and she was there for all the discussions about it. She knew the most about it of anybody I knew besides myself. And she said yes. So we spent seven years doing research and writing together. And uh, we interviewed over 2,000 people. And we collected more than 3,300 first-hand, first-hand experiences from all over the United States, from Canada as well. And there were all these different types of experiences. Thank goodness there was a computer I learned how to use so I could analyze it and put these together into categories according to what they said and things like that. And I was able to do it. And these were very, very moving experiences which fall into 12 different categories. And in the, I can't speak of your country or any other place, but in the United States it seems to be that somewhere between 20 and 40%, I know it's a wide difference, of the entire population have had one or more of what we call after-death communication experiences or ADCs. Yeah, I mean, from my own point of view, having spoken to several friends and family, and this is just anecdotally on my side, um, it seems very common over here as well in the UK. I, I've spoken to many people who have had these experiences and have shared it with yes. me. Um, I don't know about other countries. I'm sure it's the same there as well. I think I don't so. know the, the figures for that. No, and I've, I, I don't, you know, we haven't done, or nobody's done cross-cultural studies. There may be certain countries that are very much more open than others. I don't know. Uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, these uh, 
experiences are recorded in the Bible, the appearances of Jesus to his family members, disciples, and the general public. And of course, in the Catholic Church, it's the experiences of Mary to many different people, even recently to Magiagoria and places like that, Fatima and, and whatnot. So uh, reports seeing her. And these are ordinary people. They're, it's not that they're all saints or something like that. These are just children in some cases as well. So um, we did not include the religious uh, aspects of all this in our work. We didn't want to get involved with that. Perhaps I should read you um, or give you a definition of what we're talking about. That would be helpful for your viewers. This is um, our working definition, and that is an after-death communication or an ADC is a spiritual experience that occurs when a person is contacted directly and spontaneously by a family member or a friend who has died. And that means somebody they've known. This is not a spook or a ghost or somebody died 100 years ago. This is somebody you've known, family member or friend. Uh, an AEC is a direct experience because there are no third parties involved. We, we're not speaking about uh, psychics or mediums or therapists or rituals or devices of any kind. This is direct. And uh, there are spontaneous events because our loved ones, family members or friends, choose when where and how they will contact us. People may want these to happen. And of course, we both understand very well that parents, parents who have lost a child really want these. They're still grief-stricken. Uh, but it's up to the child to come back in some way. And many, many do. And ADCs can happen anytime and anywhere. And that's what the categories of experiences are about. You say there are... 12 categories of these communications? Yeah. Actually, we found two more, but uh, at the time, there were 12. Mm. So do you think you could um, very briefly go through each category for us so we can get an idea of how these are felt? The first and most common one is sensing or feeling a presence. That's wherever you are, which is just in a room, and you sense so-and-so is there, whoever it is. You feel that they're there. It's a very tangible feeling. You don't see anything, smell anything, hear anything. You just know they're there. People generally know where they are in the room. And occasionally, there's a shift of the temperature in that area. They go up and they go down. I don't mean, you know, 50 degrees, but I'm saying a little bit either direction. And people saying, well, I, I, I'm just imagining this. This can't be real. Because so-and-so just died recently, so I, you know, I'm hopeful of having this. But that's... The, and uh, keep in mind, any of these experiences can happen days, weeks, months, years, or decades later after the death. So it's not just that grandma died, so you're thinking about grandma and you're feeling her presence somewhere. You have to read these cases to see what I'm speaking of. And uh, yes, they do often occur during the early uh, first two years, but some occur uh, the longest we heard of 34 years later which saved her life. Uh, and that was from somebody who was in her bedroom of her home uh, here in Florida and was told to get out of her house. And shortly there, just minutes later, there was a big storm and a tree, large, heavy tree, fell right through the bedroom she had been in. That kind of thing. Well, we believe personally, I believe personally, is if you feel the presence, close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, and ask to receive a verbal message of some kind. 
Oops. And uh, that they're trying to communicate with you in more than just being there. They want to say something and have you hear it in some way. How do you get these phones to stop? Okay. Okay. And uh, so that's sensing or feeling a presence, hearing a voice. Some people hear a voice as you and your listeners are hearing, viewers are hearing now. It's external voice, but most people receive it by telepathy, which is how I receive my writings. All, all the short stories I received uh, was by telepathy and they're just pure thoughts. And you just know that they're not yours because of what's being said. It's not the way you express yourself, not the words you use, not the message you, you'd be expressing and things like that. It's like an inner telephone in a way. Uh, it's... Many of these things make no sense until you experience it by the like a near-death experience. You can read all the books you want. I've never had a near-death experience, but uh, but the books are incredibly popular. And most of us don't want to have to go through the pain and uh, almost die or actually die or whatever. But uh, we accept that they're real for other people. And we learn what they've uh, experienced, what they've told us. Feeling a touch. Some people feel a physical touch a pat, a tap, a caress, a hug, an arm around the waist or around shoulders. All of these are just usually between people who are very close because if you weren't close, you wouldn't recognize it. But some people had a habit, like a, a brother for a girl used to like sort of brush her hair every time he went past her. And only he did it, nobody else in the family or else otherwise. Smelling of fragrance is a very big category because it's not just one person. It can be two, three, four, five, on up. I think there are a dozen people in one experience who all smell the same fragrance at the same time. Uh, by this, I'd say, I don't know what the coldest place that uh, your people, northern England in the winter, will say, wherever there's snow and ice, I don't know. But imagine that, and then you're, let's say you're working in an office or in, in, in your own home, and you start smelling the fragrance of flowers that uh, like roses or whatever a flower might be. And it's a flower you associate with just one person, not everybody. And they're there. And let's say you're in an office and in a cubicle or so, or whatever you call that. And somebody else walks by and they start sniffing the air. They can smell it, but they don't say anything. And a third person comes and pretty soon, you know, a whole bunch of people are smelling it, but there's no, flower, no flowers, no flowers in the whole building. So that's what I'm speaking of, the smelling of fragrance. And those can be flowers, that could be tobacco products, foods, a personal scent, an aftershave, a cologne, all these different things. And um, in the book, we have a beautiful story of a, going to a very small funeral for a very young child. And they go back to the woman's house after the uh, ceremony at the cemetery and all that. And they all walk into the house and they smell a certain flower, um, except one person who never knew the little girl before she died. All the rest did, they smelled, the one who didn't, didn't smell anything. So sometimes you get information indirectly as well as directly. The visual experiences are the most wow because you're actually seeing. Now you may be just seeing somebody's face, head and, shoulder, head and shoulders, from the waist up, from the knees up, or their full body. Some are almost like a transparent outline and then with increasing solidity. So it goes from the almost practically 
not invisible, but just barely visible on up to as solid as you and I would be if we were in the same room to each other, okay, or any two people. And uh, so we divided them to visual partial experiences, partial visual and full visual, full visual. They appear just as real and lifelike as we do to each other. And what's very important about these and very evidential, very comforting is that these are such that it assures us because when they come to us, almost always they are healed and whole, regardless of the form of death. In other words, it could have been a horrible automobile accident, uh, battlefield casualty, whatever you want to fire. But when they come back, they usually appear much younger and healed and whole, regardless of the circumstances. And uh, they're letting us know that. We've had uh, these experiences, I said, it can happen anywhere. And that's indoors or outdoors. Some are, take place in a car, a boat, or an airplane. The only one we never got was a train, but trains aren't a very common form of transportation in our country, except the subways. Anyway, we didn't go out there. So how about those who, say, um, weren't deformed or disfigured in an accident, but were born in that way? So that was kind of their nature. How, how, how are they usually seen? Well, what we heard, they'd come back healed and whole. And if they were elderly, 80, 90, whatever years old, and uh, this, you know, horrible disfigurement due to various illnesses or ailments or things, they still come back in the prime of their life, which would be someplace like their 20s or even 30s. Depends what they decide is their prime of their life. And they're showing us they're healed and whole, regardless of what uh, ended their life. And uh, sometimes it's one way or two way communication. And about, that's something I need to mention that these don't just happen this, this, or this. They're often in combination. So you may see them and smell something and hear a voice as well, hear their, hear their voice in your head. And uh, they're trying to let you know that they're okay, that they've survived, they still exist. A vision is a very hard one to describe because you're seeing from this level of reality into the other one we call it the afterlife or whatever. But it's like looking through, and, and they may, uh, if you meditate and you see them here in front of your so called third eye, something like that. My daughter died in um, 2011, and not right away, but several years later, I had an experience where I saw her in a vision, ADC vision and in full color and she was both turning in a little circle or twirling just in one place and also twirling as she danced in a big circle letting me know that she was happy and still alive and well and everything because she had ended her own life with a gun and uh, this was very comforting to me of course but also to other people i shared it with and i'd also received uh messages from her before that but this is the first time i had seen her i had seen her and she had not been that happy frankly on here on earth and then i didn't do anything to make it happen you can only you can ask for them but you can't make them happen um, and when people i may, may as well say how do you prepare yourself to have it happen is you through meditation it's very simple you learn how to relax and open up your inner senses when i say inner senses i mean your intuition, 
It's no more, no less than intuition. There's nothing unusual or fantastic about this. Those who have that open have lots of the spiritual experiences. Those who ha are rigid and with a mind that's closed have very few things happen usually. Or it's, mm, you've got to be open to it. Yes. It, it's like a, a, like a radio or a TV. You've got to be on the right channel, <laughs> put it that way. You have to be able to tune channels. If you're only on one channel, that's all you see all the time. You might see the BBC if you want to see something. And you accept, you know, so it's a little bit of opening up. Seeing a vision is like seeing a 35 millimeter slide suspended in the air, the old kind of slides in color or in black and white. The very strange category, I didn't even know we had this until I analyzed all this with a computer, but we call them twilight experiences. And this is as you're falling, just as you're falling asleep, which is called the alpha state, or just as you're waking up. And we only identified these by the language they used, because that's what they said. As I was falling asleep, this happened. Or just as I was waking up, that happened. And so uh, it can occur as you're uh, meditating or praying. Deep prayer is a form of meditation, whatever you believe in, if you open yourself up to it. I think it takes an energy on their part to do this, or love, as I call it. They have to care about us with, with love, with caring. And we sense that difference. And it's like what we, we categorize things, things as categorize things and say it's that, 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 or this. These just feel very different than what you're speaking of, uh, entirely different. And since I haven't had the other, I really can't say what it is myself. And it hasn't come up before. But uh, the, one of the largest other categories is uh, so-called sleep state ADCs or while you're sleeping. People will call it a dream. And then they very quickly say, I had a dream about my mother or my son, my whoever, they named the person. But it was unlike any other dream I've ever had. And it's their language, not mine. And um, these are very vivid, intense, colorful than ordinary dreams. They can have one-way or two-way communication, and it feels like a visit. And that's what they are. They're actual visits. You just know that some, whether it's on this level or a different level of reality, you're visiting with each other together, the same space, so to speak, same environment, maybe is a better word. And uh, these aren't like an ordinary dream, jumbled and fragmented and uh, some filled with symbols or things where you have to, and most dreams fall away as people wake up anyway. You'd have to, you'd have to write it down or record it, the tape recorder otherwise, even to remember it by morning. These, yeah. uh, a, a sleep state ADC uh, can we be remembered 20, 30 years later like it just happened that morning. And so it's the quality of the experience. It's, you don't even, you don't have to read a book, you just, trust your own experience and you know the differences and uh, you see in most countries especially the united states of course that's where we did the majority of the research people are so busy 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 that it's hard to get through to us during the daytime when we're awake so it's much easier for them to contact us in deep deep meditation during a massage session or while we're asleep and that's when they do because we're the most relaxed open and receptive in the alpha state, as they call it. Okay. One I like to talk about uh, a little bit is out-of-body ADCs, out-of-body experiences. This is when the living person leaves their body and goes short distance in their own home 
or down the street a ways, a few miles away or around the world, or even to the afterlife and visits and sees their loved one who has died. And this is a very hard one to understand, but here's how I say it. Because uh, as a little boy, I was growing up and I guess a teenager and beyond, I was taught to believe that uh, some part of us when we die, if we're good, we go up, we go to heaven. And if we're not good, we go down, we go to hell. And uh, you know, something about the soul or the spirit, whatever that is. And I never really knew what that is <laughs> at all. And so what I say today is each of us, you, you're, each of your viewers right now is a soul or a spirit wearing a physical body. Okay. This, this is our earth suit. We need to have a physical body to function at this level of reality in order to be seen, in order to be heard, in order to cook things, make things, interact with each other. If we didn't have it, nobody would see us. Nobody would know we're here. We couldn't, we, we wouldn't be here. So we, this is our earth suit, which I compare very much to what an astronaut wears when they go outside their spirit, their capsule, space capsule. When they're outside, they have to wear it uh, because there's no oxygen, no air. And one of these capsules, just like our physical body, uh, one of these spaces or earth suit can be injured to some degree. Um, and I have a thing here saying, do this, do that. I don't know. Uh, that's computer's way. And um, as I was, I was saying about this, this, uh, the earth, this, the, uh, the spacesuit can be damaged or injured to a, cer a certain amount and we survive. Now, and we can lose all, our limbs. I mean, war veterans, they lose both arms and a leg or both legs of an arm or their sight, all these different things. And, but that's, uh, after a certain point, their body can't survive. So that, same thing, you know. Uh, with an astronaut, if, if their seat, uh, suit is torn, that will uh, pre prevent it from being pressurized and they will be co collapsed as well. So if he accepted each of us as a spirit or a soul right here, right now, that's all we are to each other is a spirit or soul wearing whatever, whatever we've chosen. And that the only thing that dies is our physical body. That's the good news. What we bury or what we cremate is the physical body. What we make statues of is the physical body, what we, what the person looked like. But the I who I am, the I, the I who you are, who every one of your viewers is, that's eternal, immortal. And we just go back to where we came from, call it the afterlife. You can call it heaven, nirvana the spirit world, whatever your particular labels are, it doesn't matter. Same place, just a different languages, that's all. Many spiritual people believe that we are all part of one consciousness which experiences itself. That I don't know. I, that's, too, that's too big for me. I haven't, uh, uh, that, that's possible. If we knew who we were, there's only one of us here. I've heard it put that way. Uh, I'll leave that up to the people who take LSD and things like that. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's advanced uh, yoga and things of that nature, and uh, I, our book is not that level. So, uh, uh, some some people do when they go out of body visit the spirit realm or the uh, afterlife, 
and they see flowers and bushes and trees and beautiful light lighting and nature, some buildings, and the whole everything's filled with happiness, love, peace, joy, all the the best. And that's where we encounter our deceased loved ones. And uh, yeah, like an earth-like place. I think initially it has to be because if it weren't, we'd be freaked out. Totally. I mean, you, you can you know get into some of these things of Dante and the Inferno and all this, all these pictures and things, and yeah, I wouldn't know what it is. It's a, you know, I don't know what it's like to experience life as being a bunny rabbit. Okay, so I think I'd rather uh, first of all start off being a human there, then maybe figure out. Do I want to be a bunny rabbit? Because that's a whole different life. So I, I think, yeah. So I think there's at least a transition period when we arrive, and that's the way it seems to be. And our our work doesn't go that far. <laughs> uh, there are phone calls people receive uh, of when they're asleep. They hear a phone ringing. They pick it up, and it's the voice of their loved one who has died. When you can say, well, that's just a dream. Blah 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 blah. How about when you're wide awake? You're in the kitchen and the phone rings. And I'm speaking of ordinary phones, but it can be a cell phone. Um, I'll get to that later. Uh, and it's the voice of the one who died. And generally, they speak some way times, one way kind of communication, some way two times, both way communication. And uh, their voice generally f uh, starts fading away and you don't hear it anymore. And when uh, with a regular phone, you don't hear a disconnect or a click or anything like that, it just stops. Now, they aren't that common, but that's a category. We have a whole chapter in every one of these. There are always going to be people who are ready to debunk everything. And I was on a uh, radio show, and I was here in Florida with somebody in Canada. And as the questions went on, it was a, uh, a moderator like yourself and this other man. And I didn't know, he seemed more and more negative. Only when I got off the phone, I found out later that he was an, uh, not an agnostic, an atheist. He was an atheist and he writes for an atheist uh, magazine. And he wanted to tear everything apart. That's what he tried to do with me. And I'm not here to defend our work because it's been reproduced by so many other people. In other words, so many other books have been written and seminars have been held and people have shared these by the thousands, tens of thousands that I don't have to, uh, it's not we're the only ones who ever heard of these and have these accounts. They're, they're very, very common. And in your country, as we were saying earlier. And so, so somebody's not running over for, from the US to the UK to be a practical joker or, or whatever either. Must have a hell of a lot of money. And if they do go do something, it's more fun. Physical phenomena is lights can go off at any time, but when lights go on or start blinking on and off or a radio or a TV goes on, say a radio and playing a song that was a special song for someone who died, that you, you, it was your song with them. And it may not be a, just a romantic song between boy and girl, but you just associate a certain song with that person, certain music or it could be classical music, whatever you hear that being played. And uh, you can have toys and mechanical objects, which may even have batteries not in the batteries missing. They begin operating like a music box will suddenly start to play with nobody having touched it. 
or a photograph that was in one place. You live alone, so it's not somebody else who moved it, but you had it near your bed of, of your loved one. And next you know it's in the kitchen and then it's someplace in the living room or whatever, things like this that are reported. So I call that it's a long list of things that go bump in the night because it can be anything that's moved yeah. or operates that you didn't expect. Yeah, and there are a lot of reports of this sort of thing happening, although I think it's always best to look for natural explanations before jumping to paranormal. Sure, sure. I agree with you. Especially when it comes to electronics, because we know that, you know, there are often kinks in electrics that can explain these kind of things every now and then. Could, could be. Could be. And I suppose many people will reasonably say that, you know, of course, when we just lose someone, we're constantly thinking about them and, and finding yeah. things to, to comfort us maybe things that aren't necessarily there in, in reality. I mean, do you find that that's usually the case? No, no. Usually it's just the opposite. They weren't thinking about them. It just happens. It just, it's out of the blue, so to speak. It just goes well. Hmm. So what would you say to those that would inev inevitably say that, well, this is obviously just down to coincidence? <clears throat> it, it's all, and again, several of these uh, often occur together, not isolated and for those who want to dismiss them, and there are some people who have experiences that they have thrown away. I spoke to a minister who had a beautiful experience and he explained it to me in detail. Then he went on to say that he didn't believe it was real. So like, well, why did you bother telling me about it? Why did I interview you? And why did I spend the time on recording it and everything else? But that's where he was at. Our largest self-help group in the United States is called the Compassionate Friends. And it was founded by Reverend Simon Stevens in your country, in, in England. And it's for bereaved, bereaved parents. And they desperately want things to happen, but they don't necessarily occur, and not to all of them. But um, we, many of our stories are from members of that group who have about 400, 500, I forget how many, five, 500 chapters here in the United States. That's where I gave workshops for 30 years to them. Um, and then finally, symbolic ADCs. They, uh, these are the 12 that we recorded. Uh, this is, um, we ask people for, who want to have a sign. Well, ask, ask a higher power, uh, the universe, your deceased loved one, God, Mary, whatever you believe in. Ask them to receive a sign. And it may take a while to arrive, but the most frequent ones include rainbows, butterflies, various species of birds and animals that come and visit and stay there. So as an example, it's not just that you see you're driving a car, you see a butterfly and then you squash it on your windshield. <laughs> I don't mean that. It's when you walk outside and there's a butterfly, maybe a species you've never even seen before. You don't expect to see in your vicinity where you live. And it just stays there and may sometimes come and land on you. Very, very tame, so to speak, or it may be a, a rabbit or a squirrel or some other small animal that will come and approach you and stay there for a while. Uh, and it's something to do with the one who died. For instance, there was a, a young man who during his lifetime, he was a, he loved to swim and dive and things like that. And he had a, a lot of rapport with dolphins. Okay. And porpoises. And when he died, when he died, they took his ashes out in the Gulf of Mexico as cremation ashes, to scatter them. And a, a, a number of dolphins followed that boat all the way out 
until they scattered the ashes and then they swam away. So that it was coincidence that the dolphins were just there. You could debunk this any way you want. Uh, you can find certain things like coins or feathers or pictures or who knows what and unusual coincidences. Now, not, not that these don't happen in a lifetime, but it's the ones that it's up to the experiencer to define for themselves. Not me telling you, oh, yes, this is what you had. It's for them to know what felt like something more than coincidence. Yeah. I mean, coincidences are a reasonable explanation generally, but it, it's not just a case that a coincidence happens. It's the depth to which the coincidence takes place and the different levels to how, yes. how far can yes. you reasonably exactly. say it is a coincidence. It, it, all these have a story. In other words, you may be out walking in a park and a butterfly comes near you and then sort of just flutters in front of you, leading you somewhere. And if you follow it, you may see a special place in that park or whatever that you've never been to before. And it's very beautiful, very comforting. You sit down, and you feel uplifted, that kind of thing. And so it's the behavior of the animal as well. A bird may come and land near you or be at the screen of your house and peck on the window on the screen or the glass and things of that nature. You'd have to read the stories that are in the book or else it doesn't make sense. I'm just highlighting uh, all this. And basically what we say is, oh, I said two other categories. One we touched upon accidentally earlier, and that is with uh, recording devices. It used to be answering machines, but now cell phones take messages and things like that, where there was no message before. And now there's a message with a voice you recognize. And yet it wasn't it. Maybe from six months or a year ago, it's still right there, your first message. And you, you hear it, and it's from your loved one who made their transition, who, who died. And uh, other ones involving various types of electrical devices like that, that don't, they didn't even know were there. We had some of those, we didn't have enough to write an entire chapter on when we were doing a book. Yeah, and of course, I know that there are a lot of reports. I mean, Dr. Peter Fenwick, or Fenwick, for example, talks a lot about when people die, um, technology, like you say, answering machines goes awry and, you know, clocks stop, digital clocks stop and fire alarms may go off, lights often flicker. Well, people have had a near-death experience. Uh, they have a, a change to their bod bodily, I don't know what to call it, the frequency, something. So they can walk down a street and the street lights go out a watch will not keep time. Computers get all fouled up. But that's from near-death experiences. I know I've heard him speak. I've been very involved with near-death experiences, and I've heard him speak here in the United States. So I, I know, and I know a lot about near-death experiences. Yeah, so uh, it does make one question why you know, these experiences, how they change the body to, to be able to affect this sort of thing. Because it seems very, very much that a non-physical experience is causing physical changes. Well, I can't explain it. I can only report it. <laughs> they can't. Uh, Dr. Fenwick uh, can't explain it either. He can just report it. Yeah, absolutely. And it is really interesting to think about how these experiences yeah, yes. can cause these physical it, changes like this. It's interesting when you get a whole group of uh, near-death experience survivors together who have had profound experiences and hear them talk. And so much is in common. And yet they never shared it with the, maybe they were the husband or wife, let alone with strangers. And, you, and what somebody else has experienced, you go, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. But again, I suppose it's very important that we don't jump immediately to spiritual explanations. We must look at uh, understanding it physically first. And if we can't, then move on yes, to more of course. esoteric ideas. 
we're a very analytical UK, USA, uh, world, uh, Russia, you name it. We're very scientific. We're very intellectual, and which is good in many ways, but not in all ways, because we're also human beings and we grieve and we hurt and we feel empty and sad, depressed, and taking a bunch of pills will remove some of that, but it will not really deal with it. It's sort of deflecting it. Yeah, it just numbs the symptoms. It numbs it, that's right. These experiences, none of them, you know, you don't go from being a, having your child die here and boom, one experience and you're healed. No, nothing like that. But these, these add some degree of comfort as you have them, some small degree. Yeah, and I mean, looking at other spiritual experiences like the near-death experience, you know, unlike the medicines that we have, the drugs and everything like that, that as we say, just numbs the experience. These these seem to be so deeply felt, so deeply changing that they they last a lifetime. You know, that they, they do completely change yeah. our personality and completely seem to take away a lot of that grief over time although of course as you say overriding that natural grief is a very long process and you know although receiving after death communications will help it won't be an, an end all to the these these are very helpful i will not say they're as powerful as a near-death experience they are not that's far more transformative in a person's values and perception and behavior afterwards when they work it through it takes several quite a few years to work through a major and uh, near-death experience these these are more like telegrams of 50 words or less or something like that they're, they're short in duration i'm talking seconds at the most a few minutes i'm not talking what seems to be hours and days at all yeah and i mean i've spoken to a few people who've had these experiences and yet they they don't find that it helps at all because generally they don't seem to they don't seem to be yes. able to accept that it happens i wonder why that is that's up to again that's up to the person and um, some people, no matter what happens, it's not enough. For other people, one thing happens, and it's they're they're eternally grateful. It's part that's part of their life. And it seems that some people are are able to have these experiences, and others aren't, or, or some more than others. Yes, and people off. Some people have one. Some have a series of experiences with the same person, and some people have one with this, and one or two with that person, and on and on throughout their life. It varies. There's no pattern. I know of. What I'd like to do is I report the messages they receive, which are either verbally stated or just you just know what they're saying, such as, I'm okay, I'm fine, everything is okay, I'm happy. This is what our deceased loved ones are telling us. Don't worry about me, don't grieve for me. Now, there are two parts of grief one is our concern for the one who died. Uh, obviously, if it's grandma, she's 95, it's not the same as having our 15-year-old daughter die. It's a totally different thing. But some people are totally consumed by their grief. Well, we don't have to be consumed by our grief for them. They're okay. That's what they're telling us. That's what they're trying to do is show up and letting us know that. But the other part is the grief we feel ourselves. And I think the biggest part of that is a feeling of, I call it an emotional amputation. If somebody, a child, a parent, a very close friend, a husband, a wife, or whatever, it feels like an amputation. Something's gone. Somebody's not there. Whether it's an arm and a leg that's just, you know, 
yeah, message. And even but, the loss uh, of an animal, a pet can cause, you know, extreme grief. Oh, oh, definitely. And the good news is we did have, we do have some accounts, again, not enough, because it took seven years to do what we did. Uh, we could have gone for another year, but the seven was plenty. We do have some accounts in our files of pets who have died and come back to their loved ones. Uh, my little dog, Charlie, died last uh, April. And I have heard from him verbally in my mind. Um, and I know it's not going to sound crazy that a pet can make an impression upon us. But he did when he was alive. I, I sort of read him. And I, I mean, I don't mean I heard words, but I heard thoughts. Oh, yeah. I mean, people have incredibly strong connections to pets. You know, you can just yes, look yeah. at them and know exactly what they're thinking, what they're yeah, feeling. Yeah. And, what and, they and you, you just sense who it is and what it is. And I've had that with him. It's quite difficult to imagine what form communication between a deceased pet and a person would be. How did how did you experience that? Just as just as for me, I just receive words, but I I also receive the emotions around the words, and or we say that's what they cause me to feel certain things. It is quite difficult to imagine how an animal, even after death, would be able to communicate with us, knowing that while they were here, they didn't have the ability to really you know convey language. Well, they do understand this because, I mean, uh, you don't have to be a very advanced pet owner. You say, stay, sit, you know, come, get in the car, or come on in, you know, get on the bed. They understand enough, and uh, they, they hear certain sounds that mean certain things to them, I think. And uh, I'm not the ultimate dog trainer. <laughs> and I think a lot of our interaction right here, we're reading them by how they Dave. So, I mean, we, you see a, a big, large dog standing a few feet away growling at you, and you know it weighs over 100 pounds, you know you better back down, I think, or, or if you're smart, unless you're a big, burly guy. Or something. Okay. Uh, some of the other messages are everything will be all right, meaning in time, your life will go on with your life. I'll sometimes say thank you. Uh, this is where you took care of somebody maybe for five or ten years. It might be a spouse who uh, lost much of their bodily function and you had to bathe them and feed them and do all the bodily work for them. And they'll say, thank you for that. I'll, I'll, I'll always be there for you. I'm watching over you, which sort of sounds like a guardian angel. I'll see you again. I love you. And all these messages, frankly, are messages of love. That's the connection. That's why they come, whether they say it or not, to make the effort to make this connection is, I believe, based upon love. When we did our research, I found out that these, of course, are not new. I went back to, I found one of these by Cicero, but the, in England, the best known one is in the Christmas Carol. It's when Ebenezer Scrooge sees his deceased partner, Jacob Marley. So, Okay, and there are other many other English plays and things of Shakespeare's and whatnot. Uh, so they're not new. These aren't new at all. But um, in America, at least, these were called based upon wishful thinking, uh, imagination, magical thinking, fantasies, memories. They're called grief-induced hallucinations. When people had these experiences and reported them, and they were seeing a psychiatrist or a psychologist or somebody like a counselor, 
they were dismissed as grief-induced hallucinations. The person would write them down like they're very serious, and this is what they're thinking, and they don't come out and tell you that, but as they, they say, well, is this harmful or helpful for the person? Well, if it's not harmful, and maybe it's helpful, but just leave it alone. <laughs> that's sort of, that's the way you do counseling. But why are these real and not just all hallucinations? Well, in some cases, we have the experience before we learned the person has died. So, okay, you're from Ireland, and you're in the UK. Uh, turn it around, anyway, I'm trying to say two different places that um, you go to sleep tonight and you have an experience with somebody who's a friend, friend of yours, a relative, but they live in, in Ireland. Okay, north or south, I don't care, or in Ireland. I'm not going to get into the politics. Uh, but you, as far as you knew, they were fine. It's only tomorrow that you get an email or a text message or a phone call or something saying that they were in a terrible automobile accident or some, something else that caused them to, their body to die. But you didn't even know it. Why would you have had the experience when you didn't even know they were in jeopardy, you see? So we call that an ADC before the news which wouldn't make any sense if it was just based upon imagination. Because you'd assume that, you know, you have lots of relatives and friends elsewhere, you're not every night saying which one uh, you're getting messages from. Well, again, yes. But what are the odds about that for all the days you've known? Maybe this is an ant and you, you haven't seen that ant for, for, you don't see that person very often. Well, it doesn't matter, okay? Uh, in other words, ADCs years later. Well, typically, if people are, are bereaved, it might be for one, two, three years, or if, if it's a parent or the child, five years, something like that, where they're actively grieving. They'll always have the loss, yes, but they're not really hurting and, and all that generally much after five years. But, but these experiences, we have ones that occur five, ten, 20, 30, or more years later. I mentioned one of the longest, 34 years later, where she hears a voice, I forget who it is, or deceased husband or somebody, says, get out of that room, and then a tree comes down because it's a big storm, and uh, et cetera. So these occur years later. Evidential ADCs are when you learn something you didn't know. So it could be the location of something uh, you had forgotten about where it was, or better yet, something you didn't even know about. I'll give you a good example. Uh, there was a woman whose husband came to her and said, go upstairs to her bedroom. This is a deceased husband. And look in the dresser or whatever, you know, uh, chest of drawers. Uh, go, uh, on the upper right-hand drawer, the little drawer. Now go to that drawer, pull it open, and look underneath the paper. I don't know if you do that in your country, but some people used to put paper in their drawers. This is old-fashioned. Old Under there. And she did, and she found an uh, insurance policy. She didn't even know it existed. It could be uh, a 10-pound, 20-pound note, meaning money, or something like that. It could be something else of sentimental value, a piece of jewelry they didn't even know existed, or they needed when they really needed money, they were told where to find something of value to, to get them through, things like that. So these are, this is where you are led to have an experience and you could not have known the contents of this experience beforehand. You didn't even know the thing 
whatever it was you were led to existed beforehand. But I'm not, I'm not here to try to prove or convince anybody. I'm sharing what we received. Okay. There's a big category uh, for, for, good, for better, for worse. ADCs for protection. I told you how my son would have drowned when he was less than two years old. If I had, and it's always indirect. They'll say, go outside and check the swimming pool. In my case, uh, look out your window at the barn. And when they do, they see the barns on fire. In another case, I was in Canada. Um, stop you. Now, if you're okay, if your viewers don't remember or believe anything I've said, okay, so be it. But do believe this: if you're driving or whatever happens like that, and you're told to stop your car, stop your car. If you're told to slow down, slow down your car, your lorry, whatever your truck, whatever it is, do it because it probably will save your life. And a number of these involve that. Woman was told, don't get on that airplane. And that plane was a big one and it did crash. Now you can say, well, coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. Up to a so, so certain point, you could say that. Beyond, you can't. No, there are too many of these. Um, also, suicide interventions. These are people who admitted to us that they were feeling suicidal and were planning to do it or think, thinking about doing it, planning, planning it. And two of them were in the act of doing it. And someone who had loved, been close to them came, someone who had died, came the night before usually. And it's by their coming. It's not by their words. They don't give them a lecture like, don't do this, this is sinful, or you're going to wind up in hell. It's not like that. They just come and just you feel their, their warmth, their nearness, the fact that they're there makes a difference. You don't feel as alone. And it's loneliness and depression and things like that. Somehow all that's dispelled. And of course, these people were able to tell us their experience. They told us who came. And it's not even the words. Many don't, some don't have words. It's just at that particular instant, somebody was there. ADCs was a witness, that's just what it sounds like. Two or more people, same place, same time, sharing an experience. And we interviewed both of them uh, in many cases. And one might see that person who died, and the other might get a verbal message, or they both get the same thing or different things, it doesn't matter. It's just two people, same time, same place. And sometimes they're at different places and they both get a message. So all these are, what we say is that almost all ADC or after death communications provide comfort, hope and healing, especially for those who are grieving or are afraid of death. Of death. Many people are afraid of dying, afraid of death. Most ADCs reduce the intensity of the experiences grief and most of them shorten the duration doesn't mean you're, oh, whoopee, I'm happy, I'm healed. My husband died six months or six weeks or six days ago, and I had this wonderful thing, and I'm, I'm fine. And no, it just helps. It's a part of the healing process. And you don't have to be uh, even, uh, you don't have to be bereaved. You might get a message for somebody else. I don't mean you're a professional medium. I mean, it just that you, I, I can't get through to you, but I get through somebody we both know because he or she's more open than you are. So I go to him or her and they get the message to you. It might be important, that's all. Uh, some people react with fear when they have an experience um, because of the suddenness of it. We had, that's in the book, all this is in our book. By the way, this is a book in 
the uh, in America. You have a different cover in the UK and whatnot, but that's the American version. Hello, hello from heaven. Hello from heaven. And that, by the way, I woke up one morning, and those were the words. I put them on a little sticker note on the computer, and I didn't say anything about it to my former wife Judy. I just let her sit there all day, and she. And only at the end of the day did she ask me, "What does that mean?" I said, "That's our title." You know, we were wondering what's the title of the book, and uh, the publisher didn't want to use this title. It was too warm and fuzzy. They wanted us to be at a distance, like researchers. You know, they wanted to us to say these. This is reportedly st stated to us by so and so, allegedly said. No, no, no. It's our, it's our way or it's not. And uh, some people think they're crazy or losing their mind if they have an experience like this. Uh, some people have a difficulty reconciling this with their religion or their belief system, their philosophy. But that's just the, that's just the way it is. And I can't help. We, uh, our summation is that we believe that these are a natural and normal part of life. It's like birth, living, dying. This is, uh, I think that these were more prevalent in history, historical times, and maybe in what we would call more, not quite as civilized, like say some of the country, I don't mean this as a slur, I just mean some where the people are more open to unusual things happening, like in Africa, where may, whereby these uh, help them to find food or to deal with a, a, another group of people who are going to come and declare uh, war. So, uh, you know, uh, to lose what in America, we the, uh, Native Americans called a medicine man. You could say, call it a shaman or many other names like that indigenous peoples. That's a big loss. They don't have doctors in every office, you know, down the street. And to lose one of them was a huge loss. So I think that that person had to come back to help and make a difference from then on. And uh, so we think that these are just what happens when our body dies and we make a transition from this physical world to one in the spiritual realm. And that's when we have loving reunions we uh, who are with people, our loved ones who have preceded us, who uh, we're going to meet and wait, waiting to greet, meet us and greet us again. And so our final line of our book is that life and love are eternal. <laughs>